Amen. All right. Well, good morning, you guys. Oh, how come nobody wants to sit in the first couple rows here? Uh, it's only my loving mother-in-law, Annie. Thank you. The, the love of a mother, right? <laughs> Anyways, good morning. Would you guys open your Bibles to James chapter 1, verse 1? Today, we're going to uh, kick off and launch our brand new three-month series on the book of James, the epistle of James. And uh, go ahead and open your Bibles. Today, we're going to be talking about, um, in verse 1, that how James, the half-brother of Jesus, was a servant slash a brother. So we're doing like a play on words. We're putting like a juxtaposition between faith and works and how real faith actually works and, and it, it's substantive in real life and faith is something that affects our everyday life. Now, if you want to get to know Jesus, you should listen to those who knew him best. One of the ways, the best ways, is that uh, you uh, get to read from his friends. Who are his friends? The apostles or the disciples like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who spent three years with Jesus, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, if you want to find out more about Jesus. But... If you want to know a person, uh, you, if you really want to get to know a person, you need to get to know their family, right? Uh, you know, if Jesus had any faults or flaws, they, James, the half-brother of Jesus, would have known about it. But Jesus, Jesus' brother, he describes himself as the servant of Jesus. He is a servant of Jesus. Um, you know, before Renee and I got married, uh, when we were dating and just kind of getting to know each other, I really wanted to get to know her before we, you know, did the DTR. What is DTR? DTR is defining the relationship, right? Are we boyfriend? Are we girlfriend? Are we exclusive? What's going on? Do you like it? Are you going to put a ring on it? What's happening? And so we need to do some DTR. And so, but before that, you want to get to know a person, right? And the best way to get to know someone is through their family, right? And so you get an insight to, what, to how a person really is when they are around their family because you cannot run, you cannot hide in your family. And one of the first times I met um, my mother-in-law, future mother-in-law Annie, uh, my uncle who just moved from the Philippines, um, he stayed with us for a couple months and uh, we're driving through Castaic Park and my my 1994 Honda Civic two-door dropped. No, it wasn't dropped. Anyways, so my, uh, just kidding, I wasn't that cool. I didn't have money. Anyways, so my uh, Honda Civic broke down in the, in the freeway, and so I'm like, oh, man, it, uh, we don't want to be stranded here. And we didn't have AAA, so it was like, I don't know, like $10 a mile or something, and I lived like 30, 40 miles away in Glendale. So I was like, oh, could you just pull it to, I know somebody, to Renee's house in Santa Clarita. Okay, and so uh, it's like, hey, do you think we could just put, tow the car there and then we'll get somebody with AAA and then we'll get the car fixed? And he goes, yeah, yeah, sure. And then so I let Renee know. Renee, Renee's like, well, I'm at work right now, but my mom is home. You could drop it off there. And so we're still friends, you know, just you know, very casual, very platonic. And then uh, we tow truck comes up and here comes Annie with fresh, uh, cold, 
um, Gatorade, fruit punch, and she's, she made Gatorade for us. And, um, you know, my uncle straight from the Philippines, oh, a white woman is serving us? What is going on? And she was like completely shocked. I was like, it's okay. And then Annie gave us uh, refreshments and gave us uh, some sandwiches and snacks. I'm like, oh, interesting. No wonder Renee is a servant because her mom has just that servant heart. And then I meet Renee's dad. And Renee's dad is six foot one Mexican guy, and uh, back then he had a ponytail. Orale, pues, all right? And so <laughs> he had a ponytail and he drove a Harley. And, you know, he had a radical conversion, so he's very black and white, and he's very uh, a man of conviction, and he tells you how it is. I was like, now I know where Renee gets her conviction from, right? Where'd she get that fire? It's that Mexican fiero, right? It's a Mexican fire from her dad. And then I got to meet Renee's brother, and they're jovial and messing around. And I got to see where Renee's playful per personality is messing around and joking and stuff. And so I really got to know her through her family. Well, if you want to know Jesus, if you want to know the substance, not just how he portrays himself in public ministry, but how really Jesus lived his life, you and I need to get to know his family. And the family that he has is James, his half-brother. Because uh, Jesus was conceived of a virgin birth, okay? And after Jesus was given birth, uh, Joseph and Mary had a couple more kids, and one of them was James, right? And so we're going to read a little bit for these next three months. We're going to know more about Jesus. We're going to see how he spent time with Jesus and how faith works, that faith is not something that's passive, faith is not something that's static, but faith is dynamic, it is active, it's something that changes us, it's something that affects us from the inside out. And so, could we all stand together? James chapter 1, just in reverence to God's word, James chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm reading today from the ESV, and uh, if you don't have your Bible, it's on the screen, but we also have it on the notes, James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, that's our heart, Lord, is to know you. Lord, we remember um, your word in Psalms that um, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Joy and pleasure are found in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, the purpose of our existence here on earth, the reason why we have breath, is to live for your glory by delighting in you. And so, Father, I pray, O oh Lord God, that through this three-month journey starting today, that you would fill your people with joy, that you would strengthen our faith, O oh Lord God, that we would put faith into action, Lord, that our faith would work, not on Sundays, not just on Sundays when we sing and worship, but, Lord, it's through those Monday through Saturdays, O oh Lord God, that, it, that our faith would affect how we treat each other, how we overcome adversity, how we treat the poor, how we are to treat impartiality without uh, partiality, O oh Lord God. 
And so, Father, I pray that in all things, Lord Jesus, that you would make us more like you and that you would be glorified in everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, uh, you could tell a lot about a person by how they describe themselves. Specifically, if they have a social media account, how they describe themselves in their Facebook About Me info or their Twitter bio. Now, Twitter, a Twitter bio is a small public summary about yourself under your Twitter, Twitter profile picture. And in the bio, you could include 160 characters of text, of hashtags, and handles of, of profiles you're affiliated with. So for example, if you go to Jay Danganan, uh, you'll find a picture of me and uh, my family. And my bio goes like this. Christ follower, okay, husband, father, pastor, burrito connoisseur, in that order, all right? I love me some burrito, bro. Anyways, and so you could tell a lot about, okay, he's a Christ follower. That's the most important thing. That secondly, it's being a husband, and third is being a father. Fourth is uh, being a, a shepherd a servant, a pastor, and, and fifth is uh, burritos are really important to that guy. I don't know why, but it is, right? And uh, it's, it's interesting to see because your Twitter profile, usually your bio, would, it tells a lot not only about you, but how you view yourself. You know, there's nothing like a 16 or 17-year-old re- reading their profile or even 19, early 20s, living in their parents' basement, and their Twitter profile goes like this cultural architect, world traveler, influencer, world changer, right? Instagram model, right? And it's like, whoa, that's a little bit high esteem of yourself, right? But not James. If you read through the epistles of the New Testament, especially all the Pauline epistles, how do you know the Pauline epistles written by Paul? All the Ian's. Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, right? Usually Paul would say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, with the exception of Philippians chapter 2 where he says, you know, Paul, a servant, because he already knew them. In Galatians, he says, I am an apostle because I have to assert my apostolic authority because you guys are preaching a different gospel. And that's how he introduces himself. But James, he doesn't say James, an apostle, or James the brother of the Christ, or James, um, the bishop, he says what? James, a servant. So down to his core, you could see and understand the character of who James was after spending time his whole life with Jesus, that in order, if he wanted to be like his master, if he, only, if he wanted to be like his Lord and his Savior, who was a servant, he himself associated himself and, and called himself a what? A servant. And this is my main point this morning. Would you write this down? This is the big idea. The fundamental character of the Christian life is that of servanthood modeled after Jesus. 
Let me repeat that. That the fundamental, the core character or substance of being a born-again Christian, to be a follower of Christ, to be a believer in the gospel, is that you, are a, you have the attitude and the mindset of a servant because you follow Jesus Christ. And, you know, James Lame's claim, James, he could claim something that no other apostle, not Peter, not Paul, or anybody else, he goes, hey, I'm the literal brother. You know, like, what has two thumbs and has the brother of Jesus Christ? This guy, James is that dude. But he's like, you know what? No, I'm a servant of God, of Yahweh, the Father, um, and of Jesus Christ. And this is why it's important, you guys, that we study a book comprehensively and we go verse by verse is because we don't treat the Bible like a buffet. Oh, I like that one. It's about blessing. Oh, I like that one about finances. Oh, I like that one about children obey our parents, you know. But, it, but when we come to James, we have, and when we read the Bible and study the Bible comprehensively, verse by verse, we have to come to terms with what the Bible is saying or what God is saying through the Bible. And here we have, James is like, you know who I am? You know what my uh, Twitter profile pic? You know my bio? I'm a servant. Now the word for servant there is the word, Greek word doulos, where it's actually a slave. Now those who are um, against Christians or those who are skeptics, against the Bible, like, see, see the Bible, this ancient book, 2,000 years old, they're written by misogynists, and look, they even, they even condone slavery. How could you follow a book that condones slavery? Ephesians says that slaves obey your master. See, it's, it's evil. Well, first of all, we have to understand that there is distance from the Bible to now, right? There's chronological distance. There's about 1,900 years, almost 2,000 years difference. There is not only that, but there's a cultural difference. We lived as Americanized, Westernized um, Americans, more subculture, you know, here in Hawaii. But back then, they lived in ancient Near East and with ancient Near East culture. There's also linguistic difference or distance that they spoke, they spoke Greek and Aramaic and we speak English right but here's the main thing slavery back then had nothing or very little to do with race because we in our american minds we cannot we read the bible through a lens and when we read about slavery we think it's evil which it is because american slavery the way we understand our paradigm of slavery is connected and married to what racism of African-American slaves and how evil that is. But back then, slavery had nothing or very little to do with your race as it had to do with your social economic status. Meaning if you were poor and you couldn't pay off, you know, how many office, office fans in the house, you can't just go, I declare bankruptcy, right, and file a chapter 7, right? That doesn't work that way. What you had to do was you had to sell yourself and put yourself as a slave. Now, there's four different types of um, 
slavery in the Roman times, okay? Number one is the most egregious form of slavery, which was you were a slave in the mines where life was tough. And it's usually for criminals and they were judged to be enemies of the Roman state. So if you committed treason, you spoke against Caesar, or you committed a crime, they would put you as a slave on the mines. Secondly, was rural slavery, meaning you work out in the farms, out in the boonies. Third slavery was, <coughs> this type of slavery was probably the most prevalent in the New Testament, and it's called urban household slavery, meaning that you um, put yourself uh, in, with a wealthy home so that you could survive. And here's a cool thing, not cool, but here's a, um, a positive twist on this, that if you worked in the urban household, which most of the New Testament readers were, the new master provided food, shelter, and training in a skill. Okay? And many scholars believe that after you worked a couple years, and some even scholars believe after you've turned 30 years old, that you would have manumission. What is manumission? Manumission is the legal way that you are set free from slavery and that you are now free. And so, and the fourth type of slavery in that time was imperial slavery, where you worked at the courts, where you worked at the, the palace doing things. And so slavery, that time, the Bible is not condoning slavery. And so there's this idea of being a slave and a servant, but in the Old Testament, because James says, hey, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, but to the 12 tribes of the diaspora. This diaspora means the dispersion of the Jews. So a majority of the people who heard this were primarily Jewish Christians or maybe Messianic Jews, like we would think. And so they have a very Old Testament understanding of the word servant. For them, the word servant, they would, uh, in their mind, they would think of ebed, which is the Hebrew word for servant. And the most, like, the Mount like Rushmore of, like, faithful people, heroes of the faith, they were referred to as servants. When Solomon built his temple, he's like, Lord, you chose us from this little country unto yourself, and you used your servant Moses. So Moses was a servant. When God chose David, it says, have you ever considered my servant David? So David, a man after God's own heart, where the Hebrew and Israelite flag, the star of David, he was referred to as a servant. When you look through Jeremiah and all the prophets, they were considered servants. So to be a servant then, it had the double meaning that it had, you had spiritual authority because God has chosen you. Now, so how do we develop this character of servanthood? Number one, would you write down, have the mind of Christ to serve. Have the attitude, have the paradigm, have the mindset of Jesus Christ to serve. Look at Philippians uh, chapter 2. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, hey, have this mindset that Jesus had. What is that mindset? 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, that he didn't use it to his advantage and take advantage of him being God, but he emptied himself, the, the theological term is kenosis, that he emptied himself by taking the form of a what? A servant being born in the likeness of man. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Look at verse 9. Look at this conjunction. What happens when we serve? What happens when we have the mindset of humbling ourselves, of putting other people first, of serving those around us? What happens when we demote ourselves to servanthood? There's a spiritual law and a spiritual dynamic here that when we demote ourselves to servanthood, God exalts us. Look at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To be a Christian means to be a servant. The substance, the character of what it means to be a believer in Jesus, it means to serve others and put others first. Have this mindset that Jesus came not to be served, but he came to serve. Do you guys know that of all the messianic titles for the Messiah, Son of God, Son of David, Son of Man, the Christ, four messianic titles in the New Testament, Jesus always, almost always, almost 80% of the time, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Why? Because it is the Son of Man who serves. It is the Son of Man. He identifies with us as men, not as this um, Son of David or the Son of God. Because no, I am the Son of Man. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. The Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but he came to serve. And so have this mindset, this mentality of Jesus. You know what? I'm here to serve. That God has given us authority, has given me authority, but I'm going to use that authority to build up, and I'm going to use that authority to serve. You know, one of my favorite, probably my favorite example of this mentality of servanthood is by, uh, it's through a clever story uh, of a person named Horville Sash, okay? And Horville had a very humble job in the offices of the largest corporation of the world. He worked as the gopher. We all know what a gopher this is, right? Gopher coffee, gopher copies, go do this. And he worked in the lowest reaches of the building, doing what he could to help other people so that they can do their jobs. But often he wondered and thought, man, what, what, what is up? I'm in the basement of this tall building. What is above me? Then came a day, Horville found a bug, B-52 bomber, right? Scurrying across the floor. As the mailroom clerk, Horville had only bugs to command and to bully, right? Like a pecking order. Everybody's bullying me, telling me what to do, so I, this is the only thing I could bully is a bug. So he raised his foot to flatten the helpless speck, 
Spare me, the bug spoke. A speaking bug, Horville spared the bug, and his reward was a wish. He says, I wish to be promoted to the second floor. Granted, Horville's boss told him that very day, Horville marched to the second floor like, like MacArthur and Patton all into one. Wait, in the second floor, Horville heard footsteps. There was a third floor. A higher level meant higher wages, more power. So the next day, Horville rose to the third floor of sales coordinator. But he was not satisfied. He knew that there were other floors, many other promotions. So he went to the 10th floor, the 20th floor, the 50th floor, the 70th floor, and he sat by the indoor pool of the 96th floor. The next day, Horville discovered, it was only by chance, that there was a stairway leading up to another floor. He scrambled up the stairs, and he was on the roof. He was now on the highest and the most powerful, and he was content. Horville headed for the stairway, and just as he turned to go back down to his office, he saw a boy near the edge of the building with his eyes closed, pointing up, looking up. He says, hey, what are you doing, little boy? He says, I'm praying. To whom? The boy answered, I'm, I'm praying to God up there. Panic gripped Horville. Was there another floor above him? He couldn't see it. All he could see were the clouds. He couldn't hear the shuffling of feet. So do you mean that there's an authority above me? Yes. So he summoned the bug. Make me God. Make me the highest, he said. Put me in the type of position that only God would hold if he were on earth. The very next day, Horrell began his work as a gopher in the basement. If you want to follow Christ, you have to take on the character of Christ, and the character of Christ is that of a servant. If you want to be a Christ-like husband, a Christ-like father, a Christ-like wife, a Christ-like mom, serve one another. Serve your spouse. Serve your kids. Don't come at this place of entitlement where you're like, oh, I just long day of work. I'm going to put my feet up. Kids, massage my feet. Uh, hey, hey, boy number one, go crack me open a cold one and get me the remote, remote boy number two. You know what I mean? And then just like, oh, I worked hard. Now you serve me. And we think that Yes, providing for your family is a form of serving them. But serving them goes far more than provision. Serving them means that you connect with them. Serving them means that you love them, that you lay down your life for them. Have this mentality as parents. Children, have this mentality that you're here to serve your parents, and you're here to obey them. If you want to follow Christ, you cannot separate Christ from serving. This is who he is. And it, it was so much of who he was that James, he could have called himself an apostle. He could have called himself a bishop. He could have called himself the brother of the Lord. But he's like, you know, no, I'm, I'm a servant. That's the core to who I am. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm slave of God. Number two, 
and we'll go ahead and close with this, is that use or utilize your God-given authority to build people up, not tear them down, okay? Use your God-given authority to build people up, not tear them down. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, what about this authority which the Lord gave? What is the purpose of authority? For building you up, not destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Later on, 2 Corinthians 13, 10. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up, and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. So you see here that spiritual authority is something that God gives, but the purpose and the objective of, the, of authority is to serve and to build people up. That you're going to encourage, that you're going to speak life, that you're going to be that lifeline. I'll never forget one of my close friends, we just got out of high school, and he got a part-time job at a hospice um, and uh, doing IT. Now, it was someone from our church. She had a hospice business, and so she hired my friend, uh, Jigger, and so we're 19, and uh, one of the guys from church, he's like, oh, brother, I feel called to be a pastor. I feel called to ministry. So he went to Bible Institute, and anyways, um, let's just say his name was uh, Dan, because that's what he used in first service, um, and say, hey, um, Filipino culture, just like Hawaii culture, you someone older, right? So this guy, Dan, was about maybe 40, 50 years old. He said, oh, Uncle Dan, do you think you could help me? Hey, wait, oh, what are you, what are you, did you just call me uncle? Like, yeah. Oh, you know, do you know why I'm a pastor? You call me Pastor Dan. I'm up here, you're down here. You look up to me and call me pastor. Really, is that what you think spiritual authority is to lord over people? Is that what you think that, oh, now I am this elder or deacon or counsel. I'm going to put people in their place. I'm a pastor. I'm going to preach the word and put people in their place. and tell them. You're here. Authority has been given to you and to me so that we could build each other up. Husbands, God has given a mantle on you of headship. Just as Jesus is the head of the church, you have this mantle and authority, spiritual authority of headship over your wife. You use that authority to build her up, to speak life into her, to encourage her, to stand beside her. Babe, I got you. No worry about it. I'll take the kids. Go get your mani-pedi. It's all good, right? Use your spiritual authority to build, not to tear down. Oh, I'm, a, I'm the head of this house. I'm the husband. You submit, woman. Are you, are you serious right now? Is that where we're at? Are you in kindergarten or something? What, what is going on here? We use, guys, men, use your spiritual authority as the head of the household over your marriage and over your family to build up, to encourage, to edify to speak life into them. It was my junior year in Bible college, and um, I just 
finished my uh, Hebrew and Greek classes. So for two years, I was just focused on Hebrew and Greek. And then after that, you had to do a preaching practicum class. It's the most nerve-wracking class that's ever invented by people. But preaching practicum is you go before your peers, who are fellow Bible college students. They have a video camera there. They have the preaching practicum professor. And you get the, you, you, it's the most gruesome and cruel thing ever. You get to watch yourself preach. It's, oh man. Anyways, and so I had that context of just training, 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 you know, and here I come. I do my first sermon in Titus 2, 11 through 14. I'm like, oh, this is the Granville Sharp rule. This is the T-E-S-K-S, uh, the substantive, chi substantive. When it refers, it refers to the same person. It's the only instance grammatically where Jesus Christ is the Lord. Isn't that amazing? And then after I got my sermon done, my classmate's like, bro, it's called homework, so leave your homework at home, all right? Make it more, you got to lower down the cookie to the bottom shelf. My teacher was like, you know, if you're going to be a pastor, if you're going to be in missions, if you're going to be a missionary, you don't preach Greek to them. What is, what is wrong with you? And then I'm like, oh, and I felt like this small. And, I, you know, of a class of 400 students at a small Bible college, only eight were in biblical languages, all right? And so I go to my professor, Dr. Jim W. Adams. We call him, hey, don't call me Dr. Adams. Call me Jim, or if you prefer, J-Dub. All right, J-Dub. All right, so I was like, hey, J-Dub, yo, man, I just got roasted. Like, oh, man, I got, just got shredded through my preaching practicum class, and I'm, I, I just want to let you know I'm going to quit the biblical language track. It's just too hard. You know, I'm, like, kicking against the goads here. He says, John, do not quit. The church needs you. The body of Christ needs your conviction of the word. We are a Pentecostal church, meaning that we, what happened over 2,000 years ago at Pentecost, signs, spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, worship, all that stuff is, is applicable today and the church should practice that. But we've gone hyper-emotionalism. We need, and we've gone subjective. Oh, the Lord told me, the Lord impressed upon me. We need objective biblical truth. We need you in Foursquare. Do not leave. Stay the course. God has called you. God has equipped you. Take this. Learn from it. Learn from the mistake. Don't take any offense, but, but please press on. You're a man of God. We need you. And, you know, I went from this mall, and my, my countenance changed. Why? Because J-Dub, he used his authority to build me up. He could have been, oh, you snowflake, suck it up. Here's a straw, suck it up. You know, I have a picture of a bridge over there. Get over it, right? Just, just move on. But he, no, he used that to build me up. So as a church, let me close with this, that if this, if you call New Hope Community Church as your home church, you got to serve, sis. <laughs> you got to serve, bro, like, this is not a country club where you pay your dues and air-conditioned room, okay, minister to me, read me a funny joke, Filipino word of the day, you know, and, and be served. You come in here, you get your fingernails dirty, you roll up your sleeves, and we mutually serve one another. And let this be the paradigm, and let this be the, the content of our character that, man, I'm a servant. 
I'm a servant. Before anything else, if I want to be like Christ, James chapter 1, James, a servant of God and of Jesus Christ the Lord, to the churches in the diaspora, greetings. And so church, may I encourage you, let's serve one another. May I encourage you, think about the humility of Jesus. That he came to serve a people that murdered him, that mocked him, that tore his beard, that shamed him, that punched him, that slapped him. Think about the strength that it took to serve like Jesus did. And so this morning, as we're going to have our council members come down to serve us, our communion, I just want to read for us Isaiah 53. If you haven't had a chance to read Isaiah 53, it is one of the most heart-warming, gut-wrenching description of Jesus Christ. And as we have our communion, Isaiah chapter 53, this is the suffering servant. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Consider, brothers and sisters, consider that the reason why we have communion, the reason why we have eternal life, and life abundant is because Jesus served and he gave his. That Jesus served us so much so that he was forsaken so that you and I would be accepted. That he was crushed and broken so that you and I could live whole and complete lives in mind, body, and soul. Life eternal is not possible. Salvation is not possible. Heaven is not possible without a servant. And it's because Jesus suffered and he became our suffering servant, living the perfect life you and I could never live, dying our death on the cross that you and I deserve, resurrecting from the dead so that you and I would have eternal life, that we experience heaven here on earth. So as we have our communion, let me have the ushers come forward. Would you examine yourself? 
uh, only you know this, only you know what's in your heart. Do you consider yourself a servant? Is being a servant even in your radar? Or are you more consumed with your title? You're more consumed of what you've earned and what you've deserved. So the, the content and the fundamental calling of every Christian is that of servanthood. And as you are being served, could we wait for one another and so that we could partake of the Lord's Supper as one? For I received from the Lord, which I now pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, gave thanks and said, this is my body broken for you. Eat of this in remembrance of me. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you, God, for being our suffering servant. Lord, we thank you for the wholeness of life, Lord, that we have in you, that we come in broken, that we come in fractured, that we come in marred by sin. Yet, Lord, through your broken body, Lord, you have brought wholeness. Lord, that you are able to make beautiful things from brokenness. And so, Father, I pray right now, Lord, that you examine us. Lord, any sense of pride, anything that we have said, done, or thought that has grieved your spirit, O oh Lord, we ask for forgiveness. Would you cleanse us, O oh God? We turn away from sin and we run to you. We thank you for the cross. Thank you for paying it all. And as we eat this bread, O oh Father, may you give strength, grace, fervor, resolve, O oh God, to love you with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. Lord, I pray that you would put a spiritual uh, just kick in our step this morning. Lord, some of us were just kind of struggling, crawling our way to church, only if I could make it. And here we are, Lord. I pray for grace and strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and eat of the bread. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink of this as often as you eat. For as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and let's drink of the cup. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, hallelujah. Let's all stand together.